Well, I can't tell you what a joy it is for me to be uh, here. I just really give God praise. Thank you for the way uh, He brought Clint Humphrey into my life or maybe me into his life. I'm not sure which. But I know that as a very rough around the edges new convert, just about four months after I'd been converted, I wound up in a dorm room uh, getting Clint Humphrey discipleship for four hours every night. And if you think that sounds good, it is. And, uh, and, and I, I was really, I'm just eternally uh, thankful uh, for the investment he's made in my life. It's so good to be with you. Uh, I, I wish I was better with names, but I'm seeing so many people I'm familiar with. I'm seeing people I know. Uh, I had the privilege of being a Leslie Meadows pastor over 20 years ago. And I remember at Jeff Meadows, I led worship one morning, the musical part of the worship, and after I was done, my wife made me promise that I'd never do that again. And, uh, and the saving grace of that morning, I sat down after I'd led this debauched, uh, worst, debauched isn't the right word, uh, it was bad, okay? And so uh, anyway, uh, and uh, after I did it, I remember uh, Jeff Meadows, 15 years old, standing up and reading scripture. And uh, I don't remember what he read because I was just trying to compose myself to be able to preach a sermon after my mangled attempt at leading uh, musical worship. Anyway, it is a great joy uh, to be home. Uh, I grew up uh, really across western Canada, born in Winnipeg, grew up in Prince Albert, Regina. Uh, my family is uh, in Airdrie and uh, was converted on the edge of the Red Deer River in Drumheller and then went to Prairie Bible College. So it is a great joy uh, to be home and, and to be here opening God's Word uh, with you. Would you open your Bibles to the book of Romans, the book of Romans in the first chapter, and we're going to read uh, Paul's very famous words at the beginning of that great book. Uh, we'll actually read um, verse, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to verse 17, but our passage will really just be verses 16 and 17. So we'll be looking at Romans 1, 1 through 117, but we will hone in uh, on those last two verses that we read. And you might even get more out of the talk if you make the connection between verse 15 and 16 as we read. So Romans chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll read through to what's often regarded as Paul's thesis statement. That might be a bit strong, but... Definitely a central verse in the passage, verses 16 and 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God, in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord through him whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to jesus christ to all those in rome who are loved by god and called to be saints grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. 
So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is God's Word. Father, we pray and ask You now that You would take the Word that made the world and the Word that makes a new creation, and Lord God, that You would come and move powerfully and actively in our midst by Your Word. Lord God, we pray this would be a distinctly blessed Friday night where Your Word comes home to us and helps us to thrive and to even regain what's, off, what's been called that apostolic stride. Lord God, that we would be able to walk with a courage and an eagerness in these days. We pray and pray You'd help me, especially in my great weakness in speaking and thinking, and You'd help us in our great weakness of listening and thinking. We pray You'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been asked in this first session to think with you about the gospel. And what a happy task. But where do you start? We could look at the events of the gospel. Jesus was born. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. And then, of course, that forgotten event that matters a lot today, that He ascended to the right hand of the Father and He's going to return. We could look at those events and that would be a profitable way to spend our time. We could, on the other hand, look at the significance of those events. It's important that we know what happened in the Gospel, but most of the New Testament is dedicated to explaining why it happened. Why did He die? Why was He born? He was born under the law. Why did He live? He lived to obey the law that we never obeyed. Why did He die? He died to take the curse of the law that we deserved. Why was He raised from the dead? To show that God had accepted the sacrifice. And why did He ascend to the right hand of the Father? Well, death couldn't hold Him. And He had now been coronated as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That would be a happy way to spend an hour as well to think about uh, the significance of the Gospel. We could also do something different. It might be fitting for a time that's set aside to be Clint's always had a way with words, Calgary Heralds, that's so good. I wish I could think of things like that. Anyway, uh, anyway, we could think about maybe a more evangelistic outline of the Gospel. It's not original to me, but I've been helped to think about the Gospel as a message about God, and a message about man, and a message about Christ and the message about the response that's required. I find those things very helpful. Just have in my mind, you know, no gospel opportunity usually proceeds from A to B to C. You kind of jump in wherever the person's at. But to have in your mind, this is a message about God. I need to communicate who God is. This is a message about man. I need to communicate who man is and the trouble he's in. This is a message about Christ and the way He solves our problem and redeems us to the Father. And of course, this is not just a message. We're not just doing comparative religions when we do evangelism. We're calling for a response. We could do all those things. We could look at the events of the Gospel. We could look at the significance of those events. We could get a good evangelistic outline. And yet, I feel led this evening not to do any of those things. What I want to do this evening is to think about the attitude that we tend to lack that keeps us from sharing the Gospel. I'm going to be honest with you. This conference, I think you probably know the events of the Gospel. I don't think there's anyone here going, Jesus lived, Jesus died. What was the next one? And I know with the kind of preaching you're getting at this church, you're regularly having unpacked for you the significance of those events. And there may be many of you who've actually at some point have memorized or committed to your mind some way of sharing it. But isn't it interesting that we all tend to struggle to remain eager 
to share the gospel. And isn't it astounding, and I feel America's in the same situation, but Canada always feels about 10 years ahead of the United States in this department. We are living in cultures that increasingly shame us and, and disincentivize sharing the gospel. I mean, who wants to share a message that's going to get you called a hater? Especially in a culture where right down to the very tone of your voice, it's communicating a kindness and a politeness. Nobody wants to be a hater in that environment. And yet it's that, exactly that kind of thing that will happen to us as we share the gospel. And so my purpose tonight is to inflame our eagerness, our boldness, our joy in actually proclaiming the gospel and sharing the gospel. And to do this, I'm not planning to tell you how many people will die and go to hell in the time it takes you to preach this message, me to preach this message. Don't you feel guilty for wasting your time being here? You could be out there sharing the gospel. That's not what we're going to do. I don't plan to guilt you or scold you. I'd like to sympathize with you and to encourage you. My sympathy and my encouragement both come from a very famous book, the one we read from the book of Romans. The verses we're looking at uh, could be called Paul's thesis statement, though I said I think that's probably a bit strong. And the verses are the ones we read. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Did you notice that Paul says he's eager? Did you see it there in the passage? I'm eager. I'm eager. Now, part of the problem is that preachers have a reputation for exaggerating. How many people were at the meeting? Oh, there was at least 500. You know, pre preachers have this reputation for going beyond what ought to be said. That was not Paul's tendency. Paul actually, at least at two separate points in the book of Romans, tells us that when he speaks about what's happening in his own heart, that he does so with a consciousness that God is his witness. You can see one. We read it actually there in the beginning of our Romans as we were reading through uh, the first portion of the chapter. We, we saw that Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. This is not just a guy saying, I pray for you. This is not just a, a man saying, I'm eager to preach the gospel. You've got to keep motivated. You've got to be an, a leader. No, that's not what Paul's doing. He actually possesses a real eagerness that you may or may not possess right now. We're not worried about starting points. But he actually possesses an eagerness to share the gospel. He wants to. He's eager. He wants to get to Rome. And he wants to get to Rome because he wants to share the gospel. What? With the highfalutin so he can show how sophisticated the gospel is? No, he'd be happy to preach it to the Gentiles and their philosophers or the barbarians. He's, he's comfortable with a guy drinking out of an ale horn and another guy. I'm sure that's uh, anachronistic. But you get the picture. The Apostle Paul is actually eager. And he's eager because, this is the connection, this is so important, because he's free of shame. Because he's free of shame. When a person is free of shame, when they think they've enjoyed something good, something, something wonderful, I mean, when my kids see something good online, what do they do? Dad, 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 come here, come here. I want to show you this. I want to show you this. Right? Now, if they've looked at something bad online, they never do that. They never come up to me and say, I want you to see this. When we feel ashamed of something, we want to keep it quiet. It, it diminishes our eagerness of soul when we feel ashamed of what it is we're called to share. And it increases the eagerness in our soul when we are free from shame. So, I am eager to preach the gospel to you all sort of norm for, because of this reason, because I'm not ashamed of it. I love this message. It's good. And there's nothing that I would love to share with you more. Now, 
I'm going to get into the, the actual words of the text, but we're going to get there a little slowly. And the first thing I want to say to you, and it's an implication of this passage, is that the world wants you to feel ashamed of the gospel. Do you feel it? Before I say a word, do you know what I'm talking about? Do I even need to preach this point? Yeah, I do. So it, the world wants you to feel ashamed of the gospel. One of the reasons Paul makes the statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is because he is pushing against the temptation to shame that he knows every believer feels in their soul. And the sense of temptation that is constantly being hoisted upon us by the world. Think with me for a second about the shame Paul was tempted to feel because of his association with the gospel. He knew uh, that, cult, that the culturally elite of his day found his gospel quite laughable. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that Greeks seek wisdom and they don't find it in his gospel. He also knew his countrymen, the Jews, found him quite weak and foolish. The Jews, he tells us, again in 1 Corinthians, were looking for signs, displays of power, and a Messiah breathing his last on a Roman torture stick was not their idea of power. Every culture he went to thought he was foolish. If you've ever traveled abroad and done something that was native to your culture, that made sense in your culture, and they looked at you like you were crazy, you could comfort yourself and say, well, back home, it makes sense. Paul couldn't get that anywhere. There was no home base outside of the church where the things he believed were perceived as wise. There was no Bible belt of some country. There was no promised land. Everywhere he went, they thought, you are an idiot. In Acts 17, he's invited to speak by philosophers and he, he barely has an open door Here, here's here's how they here's the open door they give him what does this babbler have to say now i'm going to tell you as a preacher it's a lot nicer to say ryan fullerton's my friend and he pastors a church You're like okay i'll preach to you i mean it's, it's nothing if they say okay babbler number one so paul gets up babbler number one and i mean i, I read the sermon in Acts 17 i'm like you're a genius. You're quoting their poets. You're making reasoned arguments. You're, you're acting cool and rational even when they think you're an idiot. And you know what they do? They mocked him. As soon as he got to the resurrection. A man whose writings and the thought about those writings have filled the libraries of the world. They mocked him. Because he seemed like just some irrational babbler. Acts 26. Paul gets a chance to speak before kings, Agrippa, Festus, and he's not trying to be Mr. Cool Pastor. He doesn't have some fancy kicks on, showing the, showing the kings how cool he is. He, 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 he braces himself as a man about to speak to royalty. And he speaks with dignity. And he speaks with clarity. And he gives a reasoned argument based on the facts the kings know. And he presents himself to them in rational Words presenting the Lord Jesus Christ to this royalty, not mocking their rulership, not saying Jesus is the king and you guys aren't nothing. No, but with full dignity and honor, he presents himself to these men. And the response he gets, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Great learning is driving you out of your mind. You can put on your best rational arguments and you should you should and your most winsome presentation of the gospel and you should and you will be perceived as a fool as someone whose learning hasn't driven them to the truth but is out of their minds paul was mocked called names dismissed called crazy. The word gaslighting is having a moment these days. It refers, of course, to men who abusively make their wives feel crazy by accusing them of being irrational when they're being totally rational. It's totally the way the world 
treated Paul. For all his rationality, for all his clarity, for all his willingness even to draw on the best insights of their own poets, he was mocked as a fool. And Peter says to the Christians of his day that that's the reaction not just the preachers get, but the average Christians get. The time that has passed suffices, Peter says, for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Beloved, we're living in a day where if you don't regularly get the cannabis edibles and you don't think it's a viable option to maybe cut your kid's genitals off if they want to wear a dress one day, you're a nut job. That's crazy. But you're the one, and I'm the one, who looks crazy. And that attitude of the world calling what's reasonable and sane and sober crazy is just one more attempt of the world to shame the gospel. You and I have tasted the love of God in Christ Jesus, and you're full of love, and now all of a sudden you want to share it, and what does that make you? A hater. Now, who wants to be a hater? If you have an ounce of sanity in your being, you don't want to be known as a hater. And now you are faced with the temptation to be ashamed. And if you give in to that temptation to be ashamed, the first thing to go will be your eagerness to proclaim the gospel. That's just what the world wants. It's what the devil wants. And it's what must be overcome if you would be saved. I am sure you remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Mark 8.38 So my first point was that the world wants to make you feel ashamed. And Paul, in uttering these words, I am not ashamed, is, is, is leading. He's, he's being a pastor. He's being a Christian leader. And he's saying, this is what it looks like to walk with Christ. I am not ashamed. And that brings me to my second point. Bold eagerness and freedom from shame was a regular experience for the New Testament Christians. One of the worst things we could do this evening would be to, to leave and say, Paul was bold. And I like liking bold people. We all like liking bold people. It's not, it's not unusual to like liking bold people. What's a miracle is to be a bold person. And when I say bold, can I be clear about something? I'm not talking about the introverts becoming extroverts. We're not talking about function of personality. We're talking about people so confident in what they believe, so conscious of how what they believe is needed, that they're bold to speak it quietly or loudly. Whatever personality you have really doesn't matter. In fact, God may have made you just that way to get you into particularly interesting places. Bold eagerness, this is the second point, and freedom from shame was a regular experience of the New Testament Christians. This verse that we're looking at, I am not ashamed of the gospel, is not a one-off in the New Testament. Think about the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, the believers heal a man and preach the gospel. Now, if you're a Jesus, what do you do when people start healing people in your town? Arrest them. So they heal a man and preach the gospel, and what do they get? Arrested and threatened. And when you get beaten for something by the leaders of your community, what are you tempted to be? Ashamed. And what do they do? They prayed, Sovereign Lord, stretch out your hand. And in Acts 4.29 says, 
They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. They were afraid. They were just like you and me. They were normal human beings. The last thing you ever want to do is place the people in the Bible as if they walked around just an inch off the ground. If you looked real close, you could see the halo over their heads. These were ordinary people. And they continued on with boldness. In Acts 9-11, through the believers are persecuted, kicked out of their hometowns. What do they do? They went out preaching the Gospel and Acts 11 says, "And and the hand of the Lord was with them. They enjoyed a holy boldness. They enjoyed a power that made them eager, that caused them to overcome shame. Is that your experience? Do you find yourself brimming with eagerness and boasting in the Gospel? Or do you find yourself shirking back from embracing your identity as a fool for Christ's sake? Well, now let me get into the meat of what I want to say. The rest of what I want to say, I want to give to you under the heading, How Paul Overcame the Temptation to Be Ashamed of the Gospel. How did he do it? What, what, what was happening in Paul that led him to overcome the temptation to be ashamed of the Gospel? The Apostle Paul is making this claim here. I am not ashamed of the Gospel. He's a man of sincerity. When he speaks about the state of his own heart, it's not for dramatic effect or because he read a good leadership book. It's what's actually happening before God in him. He is actually eager and he's holding it out to say to you, follow me as I follow Christ. It's, it's being offered to you, this kind of eagerness. So Paul, how'd you get there? Walk me through it. How did you get to the place where even though they whip you, beat you, mock you, slander you, gaslight you, you just want to go back and tell it to them one more time and get to the next city where they're going to deride you and tell them to. How'd you get there, Paul? And the first reason is because of God's power. It's because of God's power. Do you see that there in the text? He says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's amazing. Uh, we've got a son coming of age. and I had, He was a scrawny little thing. He, he wrestled 103, if you know anything about wrestling. And then all of a sudden, 18, 19 years, just blew up. Muscles everywhere. And I was talking to a friend of mine about this, and he was saying, yeah, I've got a son. He's about 16-year-old. He walks around the house with his shirt off, just kind of doing this thing. Look at these muscles, and it's the glory of young men. Is there strength? That's biblical. We're not ashamed of power. We love power. And, and I mean that in the best sense. I don't mean insidious power. I just mean we, it's strong things are good things. There's a reason we marvel at athletic accomplishments. Paul has found a power. And it's a power beyond the muscles of a young man. It's power beyond any athletic accomplishment. It's the very power of God. You know, if there's anything that's clear in the Bible, and there's some things that are not equally clear, but boy, if there's anything that's clear in the Bible, it's the God of the Bible is a God of all power. He speaks and Asia is. He speaks and the sun begins to burn forever. He speaks and sees part. He sees, he speaks, and walls fall down. Just, just he uses the, the trumpet blast to take down the walls of a city. The God of the Bible intentionally sets His people up in the book of Exodus against the superpower of the day. And He turns their water into blood. He slays their strength. Their firstborn sons. He exerts all power. The Lord is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. You may have an unbelieving family member that you think can't be saved. Oh, no, no, no. The Lord is in the heavens. And He does 
whatever He pleases. He says mountains rise up and they rise up. He says valleys be low and they are low. He says Nebuchadnezzar, you'll be a king and Nebuchadnezzar is a king. He says Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to be a cow and Nebuchadnezzar is a cow. God is a God of all power. Or He's at least bovine in His actions. And this is actually the theological conviction that both believers and unbelievers share. Everyone you've ever met knows God is powerful. Romans 1.20 His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. His power in the Bible is revealed throughout the Old Testament in all kinds of mighty physical acts of salvation. But nowhere is His power exerted more strongly than in the New Testament when He displays His spiritual act of salvation, rescuing sinners from death and hell. Romans 6 says it this way. Think about this. The great display of God's power in the Old Testament, taking a people out of slavery, parting a sea, walking them into a new country, conquering their enemies. And Paul says to the Roman Christians, thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Have you lost the wonder of what it took to save you? You're bad. And so am I. We are none righteous, no, not one. Every thought of our heart without Christ is only evil continually. And if you woke up this morning with any inclination to worship the Lord, any inclination to follow Jesus, any inclination to trust Him, it was an act of sovereign power. God's power was at work sustaining, strengthening your feel. What you felt as weakness, no doubt, is actually a mighty display of God's power surging and bubbling in you. Beloved, we should never be ashamed of the power of God. It is beautiful beyond description. It changes lives. On one occasion, Harry Ironside, great preacher of the last century, was, uh, he was giving a, a testimony. He had run into some Salvation Army uh, converts. This is back in the day when the Salvation Army had converts. But anyway, he ran into some Salvation Army converts. I'm sure they still do some, but the Salvation Army was a, a force for leading men and women to salvation through Jesus when it was originally incepted. Not just ringing bells outside of the Walmart to give to the homeless, but actually preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. So Ironside, he's in San Francisco and he runs into a bunch of uh, Salvation Army converts that he knows and they say, well, you share a testimony. So he shares a testimony of how God had saved him. And after he's done sharing the testimony, a famous agnostic who was doing work to organize uh, socialist groups up and down the West Coast of the United States slips him a card saying, I challenge you to a debate next Sunday at 4. Agnostic versus preacher. And Ironside says to him, okay, I'm going to debate you next Sunday at 4, but i got one condition. You need to bring two people whose lives have been utterly transformed from degradation because of your preaching of agnosticism. Bring me one man and one woman who were in the gutter, they were full of immorality, they were sinning, being sinned against, and you preach agnosticism to them, and they have been transformed. And he said, and I'll bring a hundred. Utterly transformed by the gospel. Well, the agnostic went, okay, I get it, I get it. And he walked away from the debate. Because Ironside knew the power of the gospel. And he wasn't ashamed of it. The second thing that kept Paul from being ashamed of the gospel, the second thing that kept him eager was not only that he knew the power of God, but because he knew God's righteousness. He got, knew God's righteousness. Do you see that there in the text? 
I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Now this phrase, righteousness of God, it appears more than once in the book of Romans, and it it doesn't always mean the same thing every time it shows up. You think a phrase in the Bible that means something different when you come across it? Yeah, that shouldn't trouble you too much. You remember Bilbo saying to Gandalf, good morning? And then they have this little debate on what kind of good morning they're talking about. Is Bilbo saying good morning, like get out of here, good morning, on with you? Or is he saying it's a good morning to be good? Or rather the morning is good with the sunshine? This one phrase can take on these different meanings. And righteousness of God is like that in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 3, it means, I'll put it this way, kind of what you'd think it would mean. It means God's righteous standard. His right discernment in judging. In in Romans chapter 3, it says, our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God and His judgment. We're wicked. He's righteous. He's going to judge us in righteousness. But, and praise God for this, that is not the dominant way this phrase is used in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, the phrase righteousness of God is used not primarily to describe God's righteousness in judging us, but the righteousness God gives to sinners as a gift. Martin Luther was tormented for years when he would read the phrase righteousness of God. And the story is told that Luther would read the phrase and he said, I, I, would, I would hate this phrase. I would, I would hate God for this phrase because I just thought it meant the righteousness God is going to judge me with. And then, after studying and studying and studying the book of Romans, he saw that this righteousness was not a righteousness God required of him, but a righteousness God would give him only for faith. You could jot down these verses. I don't have time to turn to them. But in Romans 5.17, he speaks of the free gift of righteousness. God gives righteousness. Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. The Gospel, beloved, is the good news that God will give the unrighteous righteousness they did not produce or create or work for or earn. Is there, more, is there a more beautiful picture of what I'm talking about in the Bible than the one found in Zechariah chapter 3? Remember that passage? There, there's this vision given of a priest. And the priest is standing before God. And the priest, remember priests represent God's people, is standing before God being accused of sin. And it's said that his garments are filthy. And I'm told, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm told filthy is like bathroom filthy. Like they're covered in wretched dung. And he's being accused of all the wickedness and filth that he's covered in. And then in that vision, God responds. And he brings Joshua the high priest a new set of clean clothes. Beloved, this is what's happened to us when we believe the Gospel. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to us. You know what I wrote in my Bible years ago? I have a copy of the Scriptures at home. And uh, of course, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we read that and what do we we get? We get the life of Jesus, right? Right? And, 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 and we get an example to follow. Of course we do. We should follow the example of Jesus. But in my Bible, when this dawned on me as clearly as it had ever dawned, I wrote in my Bible these words. This life that you're about to read is the one that's been credited to your account. 
You ever thought that the guy in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John was pretty awesome? Me too. And it's His righteousness you're clothed in. You're like, I didn't do my devotions this morning. I don't care. If your devotions could ruin this righteousness, it's not worth talking about. You say, well, I actually yelled at my wife on the way here. Well, you should repent, but I'll tell you what, it didn't put a chink in that righteousness. The righteousness of Christ was earned and secured 2,000 years ago. It is perfect, it is flawless, and it's given to us as a robe that covers all of our guilty stains. And once it's placed on a Christian, it is on them forever. On your best moments. On those moments where you're reading the Bible and you're weeping and you're crying over your sin, there's only one thing making you acceptable to God. It's that righteousness. And on those days when you're falling flat on your face, there is one thing making you delightfully acceptable to God. It's that righteousness. You know what? I, just, I hadn't thought of sharing this first, but I do want to just share it just for a second. Would you, would you go back just, just for a second? This struck me years ago. It just, it just blows my mind. Maybe you won't think this is as amazing as I do, but I hope you will. Verse 8. See if you notice it. Just the first phrase. Romans chapter 1, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Paul's thanks to God didn't go directly to God. His thanks, his thanks went through a mediator. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. Beloved, there is never a point in our Christian lives where we are acceptable to God apart from a mediator. We are acceptable to God only and always because of the perfect righteousness of the mediator. And His righteousness was earned and secured from that birth in Bethlehem until that death in Jerusalem. There it was earned. There all the merit that He could ever give to your account was earned and now is given to you if you will believe. Now you think about the world, oh my, this, this world's a mess. And you know, I think the older you get, the more you think it's a mess. You know, the, the, one of the great things about turning 50 soon is, you know, you look at 20-year-olds, you they are a mess, man. You 20-year-olds, you're a mess. I don't even know what you're thinking. But you know what? That's what they were doing looking at me when, when there were 50-year-olds in this room. Look at these kids. They're a mess. Remember the old song, what's the matter with kids today? People have been singing this for a long time. People are a mess. And if the message is, hey, you've got to get your family biblically ordered. Hey, you've got to get that just straightened up. There's a, there's a place for saying that, and I'll say those kind of things. But the first message, and the message that goes over top of all the other messages, the center of all of that message is this. A righteousness can be given to you today. How do you tell a thief on a cross, today you'll be with me in paradise? How many family worships had he led? How's your biblical manhood going? Not so good. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives why are you so eager to share this Paul I'm not ashamed of it it's the power of God it saves a hundred people when an agnostic can't even get two and it comes to this unrighteous world and it says I'll cover you yeah yeah it transforms it transforms we'll talk about conversion uh, I guess in 15 minutes but anyway it, it does that but before it does any of that. And as the state we're in while it does any of that transformation, it clothes us in His perfect robe of righteousness. Last reason why Paul is so eager and so unashamed, it's because it's all of faith. It's all of faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jews who are both historically and theologically primary, but also to the Greek. And he doesn't just mean Greeks like from Athens and that area. He means all the Gentiles, all the peoples of the world, if they just believe. 
So the gospel is universal. Anyone who believes and exclusive, you've got to believe. But all you have to do is believe. And in fact, even talking about it as all you have to do kind of misses it. Because faith isn't a do. Faith is a receiving. Can you imagine if you like wrapped up a present for your little toddler in your life and it was just the thing you knew they wanted and you gave it to them and they opened it up and they said, I did it! No, they receive. They just take what you've prepared and it blesses them. J.C. Ryle said, saving faith is the hand of the soul. The sinner is like a drowning man at the point of sinking. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ holding out help to him. He grasps it and is saved. That is faith. He says, saving faith is the eye of the soul. The sinner is like the Israelite bitten by the fiery serpent in the wilderness and at the point of death. And the Lord Jesus Christ is offered to him as the brazen serpent set up for his cure. He looks and is saved. That is faith. Saving faith is the mouth of the soul. The sinner is starving for want of food and sick of a sore disease. The Lord Jesus Christ is set before him as the bread of life and the medicine of the soul. He receives Jesus Christ and is made well and strong. This is faith. Saving faith is the foot of the soul. The sinner is pursued by a deadly enemy and in fear of being overtaken, the Lord Jesus Christ is put before him as a strong tower, a hiding place and refuge. He runs into it and is safe. This is faith. Beloved, we need to understand this. Faith is all that is required to be saved because all that is required to be saved is receiving all that God has done to save you. Now this is so important, beloved, because in our day, we do need to preach a great deal of law. We do. We need to preach an inordinate amount of law in our day. I was thinking about using this Henry Ironside, Harry Ironside illustration, and I, I love that illustration. I was excited to find a place for it in the sermon. I was excited about this, kind of things that excite preachers. And, uh, and then I, I, I thought to myself, and I thought, in our day, the agnostic wouldn't agree that the person having come out of all that debauchery had actually experienced something good. I'd say, so what if they're drunken on porn? If it makes you happy, then it can't be that bad. Cheryl Crow 101. You be you. We don't even have a common understanding of what it is to be good. And so we have, to, we have to teach the law of nature that God created us. That if He put a penis between your legs, you are a boy forever and for always. That a man, just on the face of it, just to look at it, goes with a woman and everything else harms the body, rips the body to shreds. That's what gay sex it has been sold to us as love. It's really the tearing apart of the body as Jay Budachevsky put it. It's putting the member of the body meant to give life into the orifice of the body meant to expel death. We have to teach the natural law. We have to teach the law of God. Thou shalt not steal. The goodness of private property which is implied in that. There's nothing that can be assumed in our day. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The law must be declared. And some of the reasons, part of the reason sometimes Christians are getting so excited about your right wing commentators sometimes, your Jordan Petersons and that kind of thing, is they're just like, whoa, like a little bit of sanity from a guy who supports gay marriage, but a little bit of sanity. And we do have a great deal of work as a church to preach a lot of bit of sanity. All of God's good, natural order, His good, 
moral law, we must teach, declare, defend, rejoice in, delight in, love it. Men, women, family worship even, throw it all in there. But once we've preached it, the answer is not do it. The answer is trust the One who was obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Trust Him. That's the Gospel. And what's amazing is once people see that it's just a faith, you know what they want to do? They want to go work hard at work and they want to love their families and they want to be faithful, but you can't mess up the order. You'll ruin the whole thing. You'll be the next generation of Pharisees. And it can be tempting, isn't it? The more the world gets wicked, the more we want to define ourselves by how we do what's right. But our message is this. And I'm just telling you this. You're not going to stay eager and unashamed of telling the world how wrong they are just by itself. I just can't wait to be a hater for one more day. Give me more. You're all wrong. The only people who get off on that are ornery political conservatives. The message is He did it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And now I want to obey. Yes, I do. Now I I am transformed. Yes, I am. Now I want to obey God from the heart. But only because it's done. So, beloved, would you be eager Would you be unashamed? Remember God's power to change lives. Remember the righteousness of Christ given for sinners that clothes and covers them. No toe sticks out of that righteousness. It covers all of our sin. And remember that all that is required to receive it is that you just Receive it. That you just trust Him. That you cast yourself upon Him. That you exercise faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, we come before You and we praise You for this glorious Gospel. We pray that we would be eager and unashamed to declare Your power, Your righteousness, and Your marvelous way of saving sinners by faith and faith alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.